Well, this morning we come to the end of the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, This is the end now of Jesus' discourse with his disciples. And after these words are completed, uh, this will move Jesus Christ even closer to that cross. In just a few moments, he will utter what we know now as the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, a chapter that is one of my all-time favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And we will spend several weeks together learning about that very important prayer. The events that lead to the crucifixion of Jesus would soon fall into place as Jesus completes his discourse with the disciples. He would, as you know, be uh, betrayed. The Lord Jesus would be arrested. The apostle Peter would deny him three times. Jesus would stand before Pontius Pilate. And then, of course, he would be delivered up and crucified. There's a very strong possibility this morning that some of you, perhaps all of you, can relate to what the disciples were experiencing on that fateful evening, as they would soon bid farewell to their Savior, the Lord Jesus. You understand the sting of bitterness. You have endured or are enduring the the weight of the world on your shoulders based on what you have been going through over the last several days or weeks or months. You feel as if you're ready to throw in the towel. You're ready to, to just give up. You're at the end of your rope. You feel like a person who has lost all hope. Perhaps you're here this morning and you just feel aimless. There's an aimlessness that, that rules your life. You've lost direction. You're losing courage, which means that you're discouraged. And what I'd like you to do is package all of these feelings and all of these emotions into one package, and you will get a a small sense of what the disciples were experiencing on that evening before Jesus went to the cross. Now consider Jesus, who, as you well know, was under an enormous amount of pressure as he would soon go to the cross and bear Uh, the weight of all the sin of all the people who would ever believe. And also, he understood the suffering that his disciples faced. And, I should say, he understands the suffering that I am going through and the suffering that you are going through. And so, I want to sum it up by saying that Jesus has some very important things to share with his disciples on this evening. As you know, the disciples have learned a great deal from their Savior. As they have traveled with Him, they have shared meals together, they have enjoyed good times together, they have walked through painful times together. But before He moves forward to commune with His Father in John chapter 17, Jesus has four very important life lessons that He wants them to learn. These life lessons had the power to transform the very lives of each and every one of the disciples. And these life lessons have the power to transform each of us as well. And so I've entitled the message this morning, The Forward Focus. Life lessons for followers of Jesus Christ. 
So I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 16, and we will be reading verses 25 to 33. While you are reading, or while you're turning to John chapter 16, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to invite every child that's here in the service to come up and join me for the reading of God's Word. Let's see how this goes. Who's going to be the first? Good job, Ethan. You're not leaving, are you? Okay, good. Come on up. I don't want to scare the little kids. Come on up. And if you're sitting there going, I don't know if I should come or not, you're going to get something. Oh, wow, here comes some more. (laughs) You have to be under 83. (laughs) What are you all doing over there? Come on up over here and join me. And here's what I want to do. Come on up. Is I want to encourage each of you and encourage your brothers and sisters who are too cool to come up here because they're older, right? And also encourage your, your mom and your dad and your grandpa and grandma and all the friends at Christ Fellowship to, to be a detective when you read the Word of God. Because when you're a detective, when you look through, whoa, my word. I thought, you looked really big there for a minute. Man, Josiah. Whoa. What's your mom been feeding you? That's amazing. When you play the role of detective with the Word of God, you know what happens? You begin to see things that you didn't see before. It's like when when a detective goes to the scene of a crime and, and, and the detective's looking for some evidence. He doesn't see it with his naked eye, but he looks through the magnifying glass And he sees something that he never saw before. So, here's what I want to do. I want to give each one of you a magnifying glass. And you get to keep it. There you go. There you go. You want to look at me and see how I look? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go for it. (laughs) Pretty scary, huh? All right. There you go. go. Give one to your brother. There you go. Are you his brother, Sam? Your other brother. Yeah. There you go. This is the longest reading of God's Word we've ever done. Now, come on over here and join me. Some of you might not be tall enough to see, but I want to have the congregation stand. And let's break out our reading or our, our magnifying glasses and let's read this together. Okay? Come on over. Join me. John chapter 16, starting in verse 23. Do you see it? Good for you. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. Now, I want you guys to pay real close attention here. Put your magnifying glass up there and let's look at this. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now I want to show you something up on the screen here, because we're all using our magnifying glasses. I want you to see what happens when you use a magnifying glass, when you play the role of detective, what's going to happen. Can we look at that next slide? You're not looking through your magnifying glasses. <laughs> it's not coming up? You've got to be kidding me. Are you clicking? <laughs> well, so this illustration just went straight down the tube. So I want you to imagine with me that there are four words, okay? And the four words are, number one, peace. Peace and tribulation and take heart and the word overcome. Those are the four words we're going to look at this morning. I want to have a word of prayer with you guys, okay? Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we uh, thank you for your word. And thanks for these uh, children who have come up to read your word together with me. God, I pray that you would help them and as they look forward into the future to, to be detectives when they go to your word, that they would see things that they never saw before, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would enable them to see wonderful things in your law. We pray that for the whole congregation today, that we would see amazing things in your word that, that have the power to transform our lives. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Why don't you take your magnifying glasses. You know where I'm going to put mine, right? On my desk with all the other illustrations. The other ones worked. All right. Thanks, guys. There we go. Do we have the four words there, Jordan, by any chance? The next slide. It's coming. it's coming. I'm using my imagination. To get us back on track, I want to walk you through the four life lessons. And we're going to focus our attention this morning. We're going to focus our attention this morning on verse 33 in particular. The first life lesson is this. Uh, Jesus wants his disciples to realize something. He wants them to realize something, and that first life lesson is actually found in the first few words of verse 33. He says this, I want you to realize that you may have peace. And I want you to see the weightiness of, of this promise from the lips of our Savior, that here his disciples are on the night before Jesus is to be crucified, and they are no doubt filled with fear. They are no doubt filled with anxiety, the kinds of fear and anxiety that each of us experience, sometimes even on a daily basis. And Jesus says this, you may have peace. I want you to see a few subheadings. I want you to see some subheadings so that we will understand this first very important word, the word peace. The first subheading is this, the meaning of peace. What does Jesus mean when he tells his disciples that, they, that in him they may have peace? The word peace, as it emerges in the pages of the New Testament, comes from a Greek word that means this. It means harmony. It means freedom from worry. It's a word that means tranquility. Now, we take that Greek word, translated peace, a word that, that we understand in our culture, and you need to know that that peace that Jesus speaks of is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. It's deeply rooted in the Old Testament word for peace that we looked at a few weeks ago. It's the word shalom. You may have had the occasion of, of running into a, a, a person of Hebrew descent, 
in recent days. A Jewish person. And that person may say hello by saying shalom. Or they may walk away from you in departure and say shalom. That is to say they are offering the gift of peace. Now, shalom was a gift that was sovereignly given by God to the nation Israel. And Old Testament Israel rightly viewed all of their blessings, all of their food, all of their possessions, all of their relationships, the marital bliss that they enjoyed. It was all due to the sovereign hand of God as he gave them the gift of shalom. So when you think of peace, think of peace of mind. Think of well-being. Think of contentedness. And as I thought through the the meaning of peace, it struck me that that peace is really multifaceted, isn't it? Peace can uh, hit us in a variety of ways. And a few that, that surfaced for me was this, is you can experience what I'd classify as sustaining peace. Sustaining peace. That's the kind of peace that you experience in the storm. That's the kind of peace that you experience when you go to the doctor's office. That's the kind of peace that I need every single time I go to the dentist's office because I am scared to death of the dentist. That's sustaining peace. That's the kind of peace you experience when you lose a loved one. That's the kind of peace that you experience when you're in an automobile accident and you have no idea where to turn next. Psalm 119 verse 116 says, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. So there's a writer, namely King David, who is experiencing shalom. He's experiencing the peace of God. Then there is what you might classify as circumstantial peace. Circumstantial peace, which is the kind of peace that undergirds you in the daily grind of life. Paul the Apostle wrote about this circumstantial peace in the book of Philippians. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, in your requ- with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You remember in a sermon in recent days, I referred to that verse as the peace that umpires your heart. That's what the word means when the word of God says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. That is, will umpire your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then there's a word that describes this peace that that is... A word that we don't use very often in the English language, it's the word salvific. What word does that sound like? Salvation. We call this salvific peace. That's the peace that you received when you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. This peace reminds you that you will never face the wrath of God. I talk, as you know, to people all the time, and it is... is, very frequent to run into believers who still think that they will experience the wrath of God. Could we just wipe the slate clean and and let us all understand and embrace this together, that if you are in Christ, you will never know the wrath of God. If you are in Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ bore all your wrath on Calvary's cross. 
Romans 1, chapter 5, verse 1 says it best. Therefore, since we have been justified, since we have been acquitted by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then look at the second subheading, the subheading that I've entitled the model of peace. And it's very basic. The model of peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you looking to experience peace in your life? Look to Jesus. Are you trying to figure out how to uh, 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 assimilate that peace on a daily basis? Look to the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You recall in Isaiah chapter 9 that the Lord Jesus is referred to as what? The Prince of peace. And so, if you're like me, and I know some of you are, you get rattled. If you're like me, you get frustrated from time to time. You get anxious. You get fearful. You get burdened down by a a whole series of emotions that threaten to strip us of our peace. In those moments, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ is our peace. The third subheading I want to point in your direction is the mode of peace. And the only way to have peace is very simple. It's we bank everything on the Lord Jesus Christ. We bank everything on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus says in verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. We see clues in this passage about the faith of the disciples. Faith that... They were beginning to, in a better way, learn to understand and to trust Jesus. That is to say, they were banking all their hope and future exclusively on Him. Look at verse 27. They believed that Jesus came from God. Verse 30. They told Jesus, we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? And so the word believe, you may remember, is the word that means to think to be true. And it's more than to think something is true. It's to trust someone. When I experience, when you experience biblical faith, it means I entrust myself to a person, namely Jesus Christ. The disciples were learning that the only way to have lasting peace, even in light of his crucifixion, which would occur in just a few short hours, was to totally entrust themselves to Jesus. That is to totally bank all their hope and future exclusively on Jesus. Let me apply this for a moment. I want you to think about your life in the measure of peace or you might put it this way, non-peace you were experiencing? Are you experiencing the peace of God in your life? Does the peace of Jesus guide your steps? Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. When we wear those gospel shoes that he speaks of in Ephesians chapter 6, one of the pieces of armor, which is defensive in nature, we experience the peace of God. And so does the peace of Jesus govern your heart? Does the peace of Jesus guard your mind? And this is the beautiful reality that I faced as I studied this passage. In Jesus, we may have peace. Look with me again at verse 33. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you that in me, notice, not in Muhammad, not in Joseph Smith, 
Not in materialism. Not in possessions or money. Not in my talents. Not in who I am as a person. The only way to experience peace, Jesus says, is that in me you may have peace. Ephesians 2.14 says that Jesus himself is our peace. Now, a gospel preacher must at this point address, and, and we are really down this morning. If, if you haven't noticed, it's like, where is everyone? Everyone went on vacation on this day, right? They were supposed to leave when I left on vacation, right? They decided to wait till the day I came back. So here we go. There are always unbelievers in a congregation. It's a reality, it's a truth I learned from my Puritan heroes, is there's always at least one person who has yet to turn over the reins of their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever, you need to know this, that the only way you will ever know peace is to trust Jesus. If you're an unbeliever and you wonder why your your husband or your wife or your neighbor who is a follower of Jesus, why they're so content, why they have peace in the midst of a storm, it's only for one reason. Because there is a time in their life that they entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make peace by the blood of his cross. If you are here this morning and you are racked with guilt... The reason you are racked with guilt is because you have no peace. If confusion reigns in your mind, it is because you have no peace. Please understand, Jesus Christ only promises peace for people who follow him. Jesus Christ only promises peace for people who follow him. And so, if you're like me and you read all the time that People believe this. Everyone is a child of God. Would you cast that notion out of your mind? If you're an unbeliever, you're not a child of God. The Bible says you are an enemy of God. You're under the almighty wrath of God. And so I ask, have you trusted Jesus? Do you possess the peace that Jesus promises in this amazing verse? Well, while Jesus promises peace to his followers, he moves on. To a second life lesson. The second life lesson is this. Remember. Remember. And here is the specific life lesson that emerges in verse 33. Remember you will have tribulation. He doesn't say you might have tribulation. He doesn't say it'll happen once in a while. He says to his disciples, listen, guys. Listen, church. You will experience tribulation. I want you to think about this, the realm of tribulation. That is to say, where does it happen? The realm of tribulation is in the world. You say, no kidding. And the reason I want to focus on this is because the world comes from the Greek word cosmos. The tribulation that we experience emerges in the cosmos, and this is the reason for the point of emphasis. The cosmos... Most specifically, is the godless system that we live in. Is anyone like me and you're just getting sick of the cosmos? You, you turn on the television, you open the magazine, you drive down the road, you see the billboard, you're in the class, and your professor or your teacher promotes the theory of evolution, and you're just getting sick of the cosmos. What is it? 
This is the system that is diametrically opposed to the Word of God and the ways of God. If that doesn't resonate with you, here are a few uh, points of contact. This is the language of the cosmos. And I want to challenge you at this point to ask yourself, have you bought into any of this? Because it's very easy for a follower of Jesus to subtly buy into the lies of the cosmos. Here's the language of the cosmos. The man with the most toys wins. This is a lie that many American men succumb to. This is a lie that many American men embrace all through their adult lives. Another point of contact, the language of the, con- of the, of the cosmos. Live for today. Have you heard that one? Live for the moment. Or how about, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. It's okay as long as you don't get caught. We have an American swimmer who, in the back of my mind, subtly embraced that lie of the cosmos. It's okay as long as you don't get caught. What's the problem? He got caught. Truth is a relative thing. That is one of the most dominant lies of the cosmos right now. Homosexuality, that's just an alternative lifestyle. Do you know we're coming to the point in America where a pastor who says that homosexuality is a sin could be arrested? I just want to say it one more time. Homosexuality is a sin. Premarital sex is a sin. Lying is a sin. Cheating on your taxes is a sin. There are literally thousands of sins, but what we're learning is that in the cosmos, the cosmos capitulates. The cosmos puts up with it, and what is most concerning to me is the church puts up with it. We should understand that the cosmos puts up with it. But when the church capitulates, when the church hoists the white flag of compromise and no one even cares, I hope we can stand together and grow very, very concerned. I just read yesterday, according to a recent study, 91%, 91% of adults agree that the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 86% of adults say that to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things that you desire most. I want to speak especially to the young people because teenagers and children, really all of us, but especially young people, are especially vulnerable To these lies. I want you to remember the words of John Piper that I utter often. He says this God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's where you find meaning in life. That if it makes God happy, you will be happy. I want you to look with me at a biblical description of this thing that we call, the Bible calls the cosmos. The Bible says that the cosmos is crooked and twisted. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that we should be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
The Apostle Paul says that the cosmos is hollow and deceptive. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of the world rather than on Christ. And so young people, when you, when you go to college and that, that biology teacher teaches the theory of evolution, you say in the back of your mind, oh, that's Colossians 2.8. That's hollow and deceptive. That's hollow and deceptive. Then I want you to look with me at the reality of tribulation. In verse 33, Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, that they, they will have tribulation. It comes from a Greek word that means to be distressed, to be uh, in a position of oppression or affliction. And here's the sobering news. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you stand alongside with the disciples. This is a promise that we also embrace. That we will experience tribulation. Where? Well, in the cosmos, of course. But you will experience tribulation at work. You'll experience tribulation at school, in your family, among your friends. When you take a stand for the truth. You will experience tribulation when you, when you speak up for the rights of the unborn. You will experience tribulation when you proclaim the truth of God's word. And if there is any doubt that you will experience tribulation in this world, it will only take a quick glance at the little book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. I had a chance to just review it quickly a few weeks ago and just read about men like John Rogers and Polycarp, men who were men of conviction, who were unwavering and unwilling to compromise the truth, and they paid with their very lives. It has been said that there are two certainties in life. You know what they are. Death and not just taxes, high taxes, right? Death and high taxes. Exactly. That's right. High taxes and death. But there's one other certainty that we have neglected to mention. That is, you will experience tribulation. Now look also at verse 33. Jesus poses a, a third life lesson. He says that to his disciples, you must respond. You must respond in the specific imperative here. It's the only imperative in verse 33 is that we must take heart. I want you to look at the bottom line here and notice that the command to take heart means this. It means to be courageous. It means to be courageous. It means to be confident. And you know, of course, what the word confident means. Con comes from the little prefix with... And fide comes from the word faith. To be a confident person is to be a person with faith. It is a person who receives encouragement. Jesus says to his disciples, take heart. And this is a term that emerges throughout the pages of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, some people brought a, a, a man who was paralyzed to Jesus. He was lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 9, 22, Jesus turned and saw a woman and he said, take, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. You see, we worship a, a Savior who loves to encourage us. We worship a Savior who loves to take us by the hand, loves to take us by the arm. And he says, take heart. In Matthew 14, 27, Jesus spoke to the crowd saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
And so Jesus uses this term in verse 33 to remind the followers of Christ that they need to have courage. He uses the term to to bolster the faith of these Christ followers. He uses the term to bolster my faith and to bolster your faith. Now, an interesting highlight, if you you take your magnifying glass and you look at verse 33, and you see the imperative to take heart, know that this is a word that in the Greek text is written in the present tense. And here's what that means. It means day after day after day after day, Jesus calls us to take heart. He calls us to be men and women and boys and girls of courage. That is to say, to take heart is a a part of our daily routine. And as I've shared many, many times from this pulpit, it's an imperative that I need to take to heart on a daily basis. You are no doubt familiar with the command that God gave Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 7. He said this, only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Verse 7, again, he says, Do not turn from it and go to the right or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. He continues, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Be not frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the Hebrew term here, to be courageous, means to be able to face danger Without flinching. I like that a lot. It was in the 16th century that Luther, Martin Luther said, This is not the time to cringe. You see, Luther, a man who was hunted for most of his adult life, he knew what it was to experience fear. He knew that the Roman Catholic Church wanted to get him. He knew that the Roman Catholic Church wanted to kill him. Pope Leo called him the wild bull who, who was, uh, or the wild boar who was a loose in the vineyard. He knew that his neck was on the line, but Luther said, this is not the time to cringe. What are the barriers that prevent you and I from taking heart? There are many. I believe that self-focus prevents us from taking heart. Have you ever experienced that? Where it's just, you sing the song, me, 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 me. It's self-focus prevents us from taking heart. The Apostle Peter is a good example of a man who throughout his adult life was self-focused. As he sunk in the water, he took his eyes off Jesus. As he denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Another barrier is misplaced priorities. When we begin to we begin to focus not on the Word of God, but we focus on the things of the world. When the things of the world grow pleasing to us, when we forget the verse that Jason read earlier from Second Corinthians chapter four, that those things are passing away. Rather, we need to focus on those things which are eternal. And then, of course, probably the greatest barrier that prevents us from taking heart is flat-out disobedience. When we disobey God, we become a a, a cowardly people. We refuse to take heart. I want to share with you a few benefits now of what it means for you and I if we choose to take heart. There are three very important benefits. One is that you will be encouraged. Whenever you take heart, you will be encouraged, which is the very essence of what it means to take heart. Secondly, you will be emboldened. 
Most of you know that being bold is a, is a very important thing for me, and I think it's a very important thing for all of us as Christ followers. In Acts chapter 23, there was a, a mob of people, if you, if you remember, excuse me, and this mob of people threatened to tear Paul to pieces. Now, I don't know about you, but I've experienced opposition in my life. I've experienced opposition in my ministry. I've experienced false things that were said about me. I don't know if you can relate to any of that, but I have never been threatened by an angry mob that said, rip him apart. Rip him apart. And that's what's happening with Paul here. The mob is threatening to tear Paul to pieces, and he received a special word of encouragement from the Lord. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. That's the same verb for take heart in verse 33. In Matthew chapter 16. Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In other words, be encouraged. The crowd wants to rip you to shreds. You're going to need to do it again in another city. So take heart. And so when we take heart, when we are encouraged, when we are emboldened, we stand along the godly men and women of Scripture who did just the same. Finally, there's a third benefit I want to share when you choose to obey the imperative to take heart. And that is that you will experience the blessing of obedience. Have you learned this in the Christian life? When you obey God, you are a happy Christian. When you obey God, you experience his hand of blessing on your life. Well, there's a final lesson as we close this morning in John chapter 16, verse 33. And the final lesson is that we are called to rejoice. And this is an amazing lesson as Jesus utters these final words before we move to the section of the high priestly prayer. And he says this, Rejoice, for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And there's a rich meaning here that I want you to see. There's a rich meaning in this word to overcome, to overcome the world. And I want to give you the Greek word because it's an important Greek word. The Greek word is nekao. Jesus says, I have nekaoed the world. Now, if I were to ask each of you individually, what word does that sound like? Probably not very many would be able to identify it, right? It's like this. When I say cardia. What's that sound like? Oh, my cardiac surgeon. That's the heart, right? When I say nikao, yeah, it's just it's not resonating, right? This might help. Nikao. What is it? The greatest shoe company in the history of the world, right? Nike. Just do it, right? Nikao comes from the Greek word that means the Greek goddess of victory. That's the, the actual origin. But as we spell it out through ancient history, Nikao came to be known as this. It means to prevail. It means to conquer. It means to overcome. It means to be victorious. And so Jesus says, I have Nike'd the world. I have Nike'd the world. And because Jesus has Nike'd the world, Jesus has conquered the grave. He is victorious. Jesus has conquered sin and death. He is victorious. Jesus has conquered the devil. 
He is victorious. And he says here in very clear terms to his, to his followers, I have overcome the world. Nike. Now here are the ramifications. The ramifications are, are very, very important as we close this morning, as we leave and begin another week. And as I study this, the, the thought that struck me was this. This might be one of the most important things I have ever said from this pulpit. And so brace yourself, because I, I think this is really, really important. Since Jesus Christ has Nike'd the world, since Jesus Christ has overcome the world, there are a series of ramifications that relate to you and I right where we sit today. Since Christ has overcome the world... Each of you who are followers of Christ are, in fact, more than conquerors. You see, what is true of Jesus now is true of you. Since Jesus overcame the world, you can overcome the world. Christ followers, then, are more than conquerors. And I hope you're with me and you, you are casting your attention to Romans chapter 8 at this point, where Paul said, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's what Warren Wiersbe says. Every person is either overcome or an overcomer. That's something to think about this week. You were either overcome or you were an overcomer. You either compromise with the world or you conquer the world. There, there, there is no in-between. You can't straddle the fence here. You either compromise with the world or you conquer the world. 1 John 5, 4 says it like this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. There's a second ramification, that is that because Jesus has, has Nike'd the world, that you and I as Christ followers have no fear of the grave. If I were to sit down one by one, my suspicion would be, that the vast majority of us, even as Christians, are scared spitless of the grave. But as we think biblically, as we think with a, a biblical worldview, we know this. Jesus Nike'd the world. Therefore, we no longer have a fear of the grave. I remember hearing about a well-known atheist, a very prominent historian. And this atheist was flying at 34, 35,000 feet, and the plane ran into turbulence, and the plane crashed. And the famous atheist died. And when the, when the firemen and the law enforcement officials began to take care of the bodies, they found the dead atheist, and guess what position his hand was in? His fingers were crossed. Now, I want you to think about that. What a, what a, a sad horrific thought that the last few seconds before you die you're going to cross your fingers you see as christ followers no finger crossing is necessary when you lay in that hospital bed in the moments before you die you can sing the song that jason has led us so many times all i have is christ all i have is christ we no longer fear the grave. There's a third ramification, and that is that Christ's followers are no longer slaves to sin. 
You see, a second before you trusted Jesus, you were, you were in bondage to sin. You did not have the ability to obey God, trust God, worship God, please God. But when you trusted Jesus, when you became a Christian, that entered you in a whole new category. You are no longer a slave to sin. We have power over sin. We have a new ability to resist sin. Moreover, Christ's followers can, as Scripture says, overcome evil. And the Bible is explicit about this. Romans chapter 12, verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Every time a woman at the Crisis Pregnancy Center helps another woman walk away from an abortion and keep the child... She obeys this verse. She is not overcome by evil, but she overcomes evil with good. Christ followers, additionally, have overcome the devil. Because Jesus has overcome the devil, you and I have overcome the devil. Christ followers have now an overcoming faith. For everyone who has been born of God, once again, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. John the Apostle continues... Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We know now that that's more than mere belief. This is the person who entrusts herself, who entrusts himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. The four-word focus helped to shape the hearts of Jesus' disciples. The forward focus, I believe, helped to renovate the hearts of these men who were scared to death, filled with anxiety, filled with fear, filled with a sense of despondency as Jesus would soon go to the cross and be brutally murdered. I trust that the forward focus today has been of some encouragement to you, even if it was even if it was an encouragement as well to the disciples. And my hope is this, that as you move into this week, as you move into the fall season, young people, as you head off to school in a few weeks, that you'd remember these four life lessons to realize you may have peace in Christ. To remember you will have tribulation. To Respond to take heart, to be a man or a woman, to be a boy or a girl of courage. And then finally, to rejoice that as Jesus has Nike'd the world, so too, so too you and I have overcome. We have Nike'd the world. I believe verse 33 contains the crucial ingredients of a gospel-centered person. And as I was meditating on this verse, it struck me that the writer of Hebrews also encapsulated the gospel-centered worldview of this kind of person in Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of And the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, we have victory, do we not, in the Christian life? 
I want to encourage you to live in light of that victory this week and embrace the forward focus of our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, it's been an incredible journey to walk through 16 chapters of the Gospel of John, and we greatly anticipate learning more about the high priestly prayer of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But today, our focus in particular is on these four very important words. We thank you for the hope that they bring. We thank you for the, the, the fuel that it gives us as we strive to be gospel-centered people. God, I pray that we would be a gospel-centered church, that people would uh, see a difference in this community, that people would see lives that have been transformed, hearts that have been riveted, hearts that have been reformed and eternally changed by the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for being an example for us, for being our substitute as you paid the price for our sin on Calvary's cross. We look forward to learning more about the, the intimacy that you have enjoyed with the Father and with the Spirit from all eternity to all eternity. God, I pray that you'd fill our minds with our truth, fill our, our, our minds with the truth of God, that you would explode our hearts with the, the monumental truth that resides in Scripture. May we indeed be a gospel-centered people. And now as we come to the table out of obedience to the Word of God, I pray that you would help us to take very seriously these elements before us, the bread that represents the body of Jesus, the cup that represents the blood that flowed from the veins of Jesus as he hung on that cross and as he died for our sins. May this be a special time of worship as the worship team leads us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.